Good morning, everyone. It is certainly great to be here this morning. And uh, we start a new series of lessons this morning for our morning sessions. And uh, we'll be looking at the Gospel according to Mark. The Gospel according to Mark is what we'll be looking at in our morning hour of uh, sermons. And before I get into this, uh, I didn't choose Mark because it's the shortest gospel. And I didn't choose Mark because it was the easiest gospel to preach from. In fact, in studying even just the first chapter, I, I find myself in a very challenging situation in trying to uh, you know, preach things because Mark writes at such a fast pace. But I, you know, in, in studying what I have studied so far, <coughs> being able to put, to put together uh, kind of a, a theme and a timeline and things like that has become easier with each time that I read. Um, so the first thing that I want to talk about is I want to lay a foundation. And this foundation is actually, you know, in Scripture, but it's outside the gospel according to Mark. So our first verse of foundation, and you don't have to turn to these because I'll read them quickly, but uh, you know you might make a note of them because we will keep coming back to them. At Hebrews chapter two at verse nine, it says, "But we see him for who for who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone." And so most translations would translate that first phrase, but we see Jesus. The ESV says, but we see him, and then later on it says, namely Jesus. The idea is, either way, you're going to see Jesus. But we see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels and has been crowned with glory. And so one thing that Mark is trying to do, like the other three Gospels, is to help us see Jesus. And to help us get a picture of who Jesus was and what he had come to do. And our other verse of foundation is John chapter 21 at verse 25. John chapter 21 at verse 5. Where the scripture says... <clears throat> It says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did, where every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So he's saying that, you know, if we recorded every little, little detail about every little thing that Jesus did, the whole world could not contain the amount of material and the amount of books that would be written uh, to, to cover that much material. And this speaks to... Mark's style of writing, I believe, because Mark loves to use the word immediately. And he writes at such a fast pace that, you know, he's trying to get to, you know, the, the, the main focus of the story that he's trying to tell. So I want you to keep Hebrews chapter 2 at verse 9 and John 21, 25 uh, in your mind as we look through this series. And, uh, you know, I, I hope that I can accurately present the material of this great gospel. And uh, I hope that we can see Jesus and that we can see Jesus in his active uh, state. So, before we actually get into the text of Mark, we're ready to start in the actual book of Mark, but before we get into the text, 
The key verse that most scholars have presented for the book of Mark is Mark chapter 10 at verse 45, where he says that I I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And so we see Jesus, you know, being that of a servant in the book of Mark. And among the attitude of being a servant, you will read of little over 20 miracle stories that Jesus performed. And you will see Jesus' emotions in these miracles that he performed. Uh, One of the first miracles that we'll look at a little bit later on in chapter 1 will actually uh, mention an emotion of Jesus as he's doing this. So, we begin, and we're only going to to talk about the first eight verses this morning in Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 at verse 8. And so I've called this sermon Preparing for the Lord. And how fitting it is for us to begin the first Sunday of the new year. How we should continue preparing our lives for when the Lord comes again. And how that we can learn that from these first eight verses. So let's read the first eight verses of the gospel according to Mark. It says, In the beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. And the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and unite, untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So we have a lot of material here in the first eight verses, believe it or not. And we have a lot just speaking at verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, and we'll we'll talk about more about this later as we get through the book, but Jesus is the first person to walk the face of the earth that is anointed to be prophet, priest, and king all in one. Because in the Old Testament you had, you know, someone would fulfill the role of a prophet, someone someone else would be a king, and someone else would be, you know, the priest. But Jesus is all three roles in, 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 in one. And Hebrews 1 verses 1 through 3 talks about how Jesus was that. How God has spoken through his son which would make Jesus a prophet. How Jesus was offered as a sacrifice that would make him priest. And how Jesus was exalted through the right hand of God that would make him king. Prophet, priest, and king. Jesus. That makes Jesus the perfect representative of God, not only because he is doing all three of these roles at once, but because he is God in the flesh. And says, you know, Matthew 1.23, you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And, you know, John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And earlier on in John chapter 1, it says the word was God. So... <coughs> um, 
But this beginning, God uses the word beginning in a very interesting way. Um, if you were to read a children's storybook, um, you would say, you know, this is the beginning of the story, and at the end of the story it would say the end. And you, the story may not always lead to a purpose or a goal or anything, and that the end is often there just to say that this is the end of the story. God is not using beginning in that sense. God is using the word beginning in a sense of leading to a greater purpose, leading to a goal. And we've talked about this, you know, plenty of times. We use the phrase beginning of the end, and the word end is often translated from the Greek word eschatos, which means goal. It means the end goal, the final uh, purpose. And so that is the kind of beginning that's being here with Jesus Christ. Uh, the, you know, the, the word Jesus means Savior. Christ means anointed one. And of course, he is the Son of God. Now, I want to talk about verses 2 and 3 in a little bit greater depth. Uh, verses 2 and 3, you know, talk about prophetic uh, passages that, uh, you know, were pointing to John the Baptist and how John the Baptist would prepare the way for Jesus to come on the scene. And it's interesting, if you look at people that would culturally prepare a town or a, a, a group of people for a physical king to show up, you would have some people, some kings would just send their servant and say, hey, I'm making a presence you know, you know, be ready to, to, to receive me into your town or whatever. And then you would have some kings that would say, well, when you go into the city and when I get ready to come there, make sure that nobody's on the roads. Make sure we have clean roads. Make sure that they have a feast set up. Make sure that they have everybody gathered and prepared to feast with the king and so on and so forth. And that, interestingly enough, if we turn back to Isaiah chapter 40, so I would invite you to do that. Let's look back in Isaiah chapter 40. We'll see something very interesting about this prophecy speaking about John the Baptist. Isaiah chapter 40. We'll look at verses 1 through 4. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So this prophecy referring to John the Baptist, it's interesting. This is the kind of preparation that John the Baptist would be making. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain will be made low. The uneven ground will become level and the rough places a plain. Preparing for, verse 5, the glory of the Lord when it is revealed, because the Lord has spoken. So I just thought that was interesting, that, you know, John's preparation, his the, the scriptures that are prophesying his preparation for Jesus, 
are very similar to how a physical king would tell his servant or a secretary or something like that to go and prepare a town to receive his presence. And then the rest of our story really leads into that kind of preparation uh, you know, that we talk about. John's message is summarized in verses 4 through 7. And you notice that he's preaching a baptism for the uh, repentance and for forgiveness of sins. Now, baptism was not a new thing in Jewish culture by this time. I don't know the specifics, but baptism was not a... It was nothing new. However, the purpose in which John is baptizing is new. Washing away sins. Sins being erased. The Jews didn't understand that kind of concept because originally, you know, sins would be pushed forward one year rather than washed away and forgotten. <coughs> so, his baptism is, you know, a new kind of baptism. But I want you to notice, if we look at verses 4 through 7, we're going to see an, a complete and perfect preparation for God's New Testament plan of salvation. So we've got the baptism that washes away sins. You back up, it says they're confessing their sins at the end of verse 5. And they obviously believe John's preaching because if they didn't believe, they wouldn't be getting baptized by him. And, you know, of course they're repenting since they are confessing their sins at the end of verse 5 there. But how can they believe without first hearing? about, you know, John the Baptist. So, now we put it in our normal list, hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. John the Baptist has prepared fully the plan of salvation that will later be preached uh, by the apostles in Acts chapter 2. Verse 7 struck me as interesting. Because verse 7, we, we really get into this. Um, verse 6 talks about kind of the, the, the humble nature of John the Baptist. He was called with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt. And he ate locusts and wild honey. He was in the wilderness. He was in a desert, uh, so to speak. And he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. A normal king and a normal servant would have, you know, a, a servant that would do anything for their king and a servant that would do anything for their master. And not because that servant felt worthy enough to do it, but because that was just how it was. You know, the king would tell them, you know, untie my shoes or something like that, and the servant would have to do it. But John the Baptist shows humility here, and he says, I'm not even worthy to untie Jesus' shoes. And he's speaking this of his physical cousin. We learn in Luke, uh, you know, the first couple of chapters of Luke, that uh, Jesus and John are cousins, and they're about six months apart, but they are cousins. And he's speaking these, this kind of language about his own cousin. He knew who Jesus was. He knew he was who he was preparing the people for. But yet he sees Jesus, his cousin, as a superior Majesty and superior activity. 
Verse 8 proves the superior activity. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Superior majesty, superior activity. It's a beautiful message. So, in this preparation scene, we're only left with eight verses. Because Mark is not focusing on John. If we read the gospel according to Luke, you know, John gets about half a chapter in his birth and ministry and things like that. But that is not Mark's main focus here. Mark is preparing us, is setting us up, is quickly setting the stage for what's coming next. John leading us to Jesus. And preparing us perfectly with the plan of salvation that Jesus will later proclaim. But the only difference, the only difference between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism is a cross. That's the only difference. Because John's baptism is on, say, the left side of the cross before the cross happens. The baptism that Jesus proclaims is after the cross, on the right side of the cross, if you will. So the only thing separating the two is a cross, but they are, in essence, the same. Because they both teach the same plan. Perfect preparation being made for the Lord. And this beginning... This all begins with John the Baptist in this short little moment. But we read how quickly that when Jesus comes on the scene in verse 9, and we'll look at this the next time, uh, when, when Jesus comes on the scene in verse 9, you know, it moves fast. His baptism is only three verses. His temptation, four, four verses. You know, so on and so forth. Mark is moving fast, getting us ready for the main scene. But he has to prepare us right here, right now, for the gospel, the good news. <clears throat> now, I want to mention something about Jesus, and then we'll, we'll look at closing it up. When God typically intervenes into a situation, it's usually quick, it's usually destructive, and... You know, you're, you're left with God being glorified, ultimately, and what He had done. I'm thinking of acts like Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm thinking of acts of, you know, being taken into captivity. It's quick, it's destructive, it's immediate. But that's when God intervened into a dark situation. But the situation with Jesus is different. Jesus is God in the flesh, and He is intervening into a dark situation. John 1.5 tells us that. He is intervening into a dark situation. But there's not an immediate destruction taking place. There's something different about this interaction. <clears throat> and I think verse 1 kind of sheds some light on that. The beginning of the gospel, euangelion, good news. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now remember, we talked about how 
you can look at Jesus as prophet, priest, and king all in one from Hebrews chapter 1 at verses 1 through 3. And we looked at how Jesus was God in the flesh. This is the beginning of God's plan right here. This gospel. The good news that a Savior has come. The good news that God is fulfilling His promises right here, right now, through Jesus. That everything that Jesus says is coming from God, and it's leading to God. We've talked about this in our, uh, you know, our nighttime services when we talk about the key passages series. When we, uh, you know, we talked about the temple and the tabernacle and so on and so forth, how those were leading to something, how God was using those to lead to an ultimate purpose. And here we have John the Baptist leading to that same thing, leading to that same kind of idea where John the, ba- where John the Baptist would lead to Jesus and where Jesus would point the way to heaven. <clears throat> so throughout the book of Mark, we're going to see Jesus... And, and in the way he performs these miracles, in the, in the way that he does all this stuff, he leads to God. He gives God the glory and all that. <clears throat> but it all has to have a beginning. And the immediate purpose that this beginning is fulfilling is, you know, at the end of the book with the cross... That's the the perfection of God's promise with Jesus. That's when Jesus is able to say, It is finished. I have fulfilled everything. Uh, as, as was mentioned in John 17 at verse 4, He says, I have done all the work that you have given to me. But even after the cross, there's a greater purpose yet to come. Because the cross, after the cross begins the church in Acts chapter 2, and then we have the church leading to heaven. And so God is just leading everything back to heaven, in which case leads back to being in God's presence. So God uses this kind of storyline to lead us to his final purpose, to lead us to the goal. And I think John the Baptist beautifully represents that. And we'll see Jesus, and I think Jesus beautifully represents that as well. And I I think we should all, you know, think about that. But in this short study of these eight verses, I hope that this lays the foundation in a way that we can read the rest of the book and we can study through these, uh, these great stories and, and we can really see God working, uh, you know, not so much as to see, uh, you know, the storyline, but we see God working and leading towards his final purpose, which is salvation to the world. And I think that's, I think that's a beautiful way to start uh, in this gospel. So as I mentioned, our, our next session will be just on the baptism of Jesus, uh, verses 9 through 11. Uh, One thing that I would encourage you to do is 
to, as you read through this in preparation for these lessons, I would encourage you to, to read over them multiple times. Read over the verses multiple times and make as many extra connections as you can. Because <clears throat> you, you would think that, you know, just in first eight verses, you wouldn't be able to bring in the idea of a, a servant preparing the way for his king. You wouldn't be able to bring in the idea of the fullness of the plan of salvation right there in, in, the, in the first eight verses. And how Jesus is, is, you know, superior in his activity and majesty to John. I, I think that, you know, when you look at these connections and make them, it really helps us understand this gospel better. And that's been one of my challenges in preparing to preach this series. So, just as John the Baptist prepared the way for the Lord... So Jesus prepared the way for the church. Jesus said, Matthew 16, 18, He says, I will build my church and the gates of death, the power of death, won't stop it. <clears throat> because He said salvation will be fulfilled. The opportunity of salvation will be offered to all men because of the work of Jesus. And we come here and we assemble here, you know, to partake of the Lord's Supper, to sing these songs of praises, to hear messages like these, and to pray to God, because we know that Jesus did what He said He was going to do. He prepared the way for us to go to heaven. So, this new year, and we have been given... A prepared way. The table is ready. The feast is set. And Jesus is essentially saying, Will you grab a chair and join me? He has prepared the way that leads to God the Father. And being in God's presence. As, as we talked about in our nighttime series, is being in the presence of God is what all those things represent. <coughs> but you've heard the word. And I, I hope you would go to the point of believing it. And then, you know, going through the repentance process and, and, and making your life right. Confessing Jesus to be the Son of the living God. And being baptized in water to wash away your sins. Never having to deal with them ever again. The barrier between you and God that is sin and death can be broken right here, right now, this morning. And if you've already broken that barrier, if you've already put on Christ in baptism, but you feel like you've fallen short, we would ask you to come too. Because as we're about to sing, we need to bring everyone in. Bring them in. And the shepherd is calling. The shepherd's voice. Do you hear it? Won't you please come as together we stand and sing?